At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. On July 31st, 2015, the International Olympic Committee held an event in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. There, IOC President Thomas Bach was going to announce which city they had chosen to host the 2022 Winter Olympics. It was the culmination of a bidding process that had begun three years before and attracted bids from cities all over the world. From Christchurch, New Zealand to Helsinki, Finland, groups of citizens and government officials began organizing bids. Many of them failed to get a plan together or decided not to. But by March of 2014, the IOC had received a number of formal bids. From the initial pool of bidders, the IOC chose six candidate cities, the finalists that would square off for the right to host the Olympics. The six candidates announced in July of 2014 were Stockholm, Sweden, Oslo, Norway, Lviv, Ukraine, Krakow, Poland, Almaty, Kazakhstan, and Beijing, China. As the IOC considered its six potential hosts for the 2022 Winter Olympics, something weird happened. One by one, the candidates dropped out. In July of 2014, Stockholm City Council voted against its Olympic bid. Officials were concerned with the cost of the Games. In Krakow, the people went to the polls. A whopping 70% of voters rejected the Olympics in a binding referendum. Krakow withdrew its bid in May. The next month, Russia invaded Ukraine. Lviv withdrew its bid. The last European bidder was Oslo. There, public opinion was already turning against the Olympics. But then a document was leaked that contained a list of the IOC's demands. Fresh, seasonal fruit delivered daily to IOC members' rooms. A private audience for the IOC with the King and Queen of Norway, where only liquor that meant the IOC's standards would be served. Demands like these did not strike Oslo taxpayers as a good use of their money. Bowing to public opinion, the government dropped its support of the bid in October of 2014. Only Beijing and Almaty were left. To Sophie Richardson, the China director at Human Rights Watch, this was not welcome news. With Norway dropping out, the cause of human rights was going to lose either way. The Norwegians are, of course, entitled to do that, but it meant that the landscape of governments that had put themselves forward was not exactly what one would want if one was using human rights metrics to determine the winner. Every city where the government had to answer to its people had rejected the Olympics. When Thomas Bach took the podium in Kuala Lumpur to announce the host of the 2022 Winter Olympics, one thing was for certain. The host nation would be an authoritarian one, notorious for human rights violations. We had a, a sort of running joke with our colleagues who work on 
Eastern Central Asia, you know, wanting very much for the other team's country to win so that they would have to deal with an Olympics. <laughs> and sadly, we lost. Beijing had won the bid to host the 2022 Winter Games, though one might be an overly generous term given the field of competition. Bok smiled as he made this unsurprising announcement. The Chinese delegation leapt to its feet as the dignitaries around them applauded. But even as they celebrated, a difficult, nagging question hung over the assembly. Are we headed toward a future where nobody wants to host the Olympics? I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. Over the next two episodes, we'll look at the stage itself. Hosting the Olympics was, and still is, considered to be a major honor. But the Olympics are dealing with a reckoning one where politics, the climate, and human rights concerns are making hosting the Games more and more undesirable. In the face of all of this, how can we keep the Olympic torch burning for decades to come? In the early 1970s, the prevailing wisdom was that hosting the Olympics was good for a city. Sure, it required a significant investment, but that investment would be worth it when the tourists and their money started pouring in. That was the logic of Jean Drapeau, the mayor of Montreal from 1954 to 1957, and again from 1960 to 1986. With his thick glasses, thinning hair, and trim mustache, Drapeau was easy to caricature, but undeniably charismatic. More than anyone else, he put Montreal on the map. Under Drapeau's leadership, Montreal had successfully bid for the 1967 World Expo. Big global expositions have sort of gone out of style, but at this time, they were still a big deal. The idea was to showcase the achievements of nations around the world, first and foremost, those of the hosts. Visitors would pack the host city, flocking to unique pavilions built by the various participating nations to take in cultural exhibits and demonstrations of new technologies. Think Epcot Center, but temporary. The 67 Expo had required the city to build a series of impressive new buildings, as well as a state-of-the-art metro system. It also demonstrated to the world that Montreal was a cultural capital, not some post-colonial French backwater. In conjunction with all of this, Drapeau had attracted a Major League Baseball franchise, the first one ever located outside of the United States. When that team, appropriately named the Expos, first took the field for an away game against the New York Mets, Drapeau was there. One of the proudest men in New York that day was the mayor of Montreal, John Drapeau, given the honor of throwing out the traditional first ball. This was truly a first. The Mets catcher, Jerry Grody, was on the receiving end of the short toss, a pitch many people thought would never be made. He may have left the first pitch in the dirt, but Drapeau's off-field achievements were no laughing matter. Putting on a successful expo had been impressive. Getting the MLB to put a team in a city that gets 59 days of snowfall in an average year was a hell of a feat. And Drapeau wanted to follow it up 
with something even grander. You're looking at all your hotels being full. You're looking at restaurants being full. You're uh, you're looking at people selling souvenirs and retail sales all going up. And you, it might be as much as a billion dollars of money coming in as part of this event, just in terms of tourism revenue. That's Victor Matheson, a professor of economics at the College of the Holy Cross, explaining the conventional wisdom that makes hosting the Olympics an attractive proposition. You might be left with a legacy of infrastructure. You're left with some stadiums you can use. You might be left with improved transportation systems. So you've got all these kind of long-term infrastructure benefits. And finally, you might be left with some sort of long-term reputation impact as well. So uh, you could say, look, this is the way to put your city on the map. The World Expo had left behind a network of futuristic buildings, like the geodesic dome that housed the U.S. exhibition and the cubist apartment block Habitat 67. It had altered the city's landscape, fusing together several islands in the St. Lawrence River and even building a new one. It also precipitated the construction of a state-of-the-art metro system, which Drapeau's government constructed and opened before the expo began. Drapeau wanted the Olympics to be similarly transformative. Although he promised the city a modest Olympics that would pay for itself, he quickly abandoned his commitment to thrift. He hired a famous architect, Roger Talibert, a man with an impressive resume and a certain je ne sais quoi. His achievements as an architect are impressive. Among them, a satellite town near Saint-Germain-en-Laye outside Paris, a huge sports center in the Valley of the Chamonix in the French Alps, and a Paris soccer stadium, Le Parc des Princes, that seats 50,000 and cost only $17 million to build. That's reporter Adrian Clarkson, who, like many Montrealers, was keeping an eye on the price tag for these quote-unquote modest Olympics. But despite Drapeau's promise to limit costs, the public didn't actually know how much he was paying Talibert. As development of the Olympic Park began, skeptics pointed out that Talibert did not appear to have a contract with the city. It seemed like he was just getting lump sums of money on an ad hoc basis. Okay, so maybe it wasn't going to be a modest Olympics, but what's the worst that could happen? There was a study done by Oxford University that found that every single Olympics going back to 1960 has had cost overruns, cost overruns that far surpass overruns for other mega projects like dams and whatnot. That's Jules Boykoff, professor of politics at Pacific University and a former U.S. soccer player who participated in the Olympic qualifiers. Jules has studied the economic and social impacts of the Olympics, and it's a shame he can't go back in time and share what he's learned with Jean Drapeau. Take a look at the most recent Olympics in Tokyo, where originally they were supposed to cost $7.3 billion. In the end, they cost closer to $30 billion. Loads of public money being shoveled into the project. You look at uh, the previous Summer Olympics in Rio, supposed to cost $12 billion, cost more like $20 billion. You can look at the London Olympics that were supposed to cost $3.8 billion in 2012 and instead cost well over $18 billion, and that's a conservative estimate. You can just keep on talking down the road like that. Olympic organizers have a history of underestimating how much the Olympics are going to cost. Construction costs especially tend to run over budget, meaning cities overspend on buildings that don't have a lot of long-term value. 
Olympic observers refer to this phenomenon as the edifice complex. The edifice complex makes the news every few years, usually before the Olympics. As a new stadium rises, images of the now deserted Olympic village in Athens, dilapidated and slowly being taken over by nature, go viral. In 2012, with the recent global financial collapse still fresh in their minds, a reporter from AFP talked to Greece's general secretary for sports about how the village, built just eight years before, had already become an abandoned eyesore. Now many of the venues built for the 2004 games lie deserted. With weeds pushing through the cracks and rubbish piling up, they stand as a monument to Greece's shattered economy and the catastrophic overspending of the pre-recession years. We should have done this job in a better way. Overplanning always means more money. It, it has been a strong exaggeration in, in certain facilities and lack of planning for their future. As this shows, the situation in Athens is representative of the edifice complex globally. Truth be told, it shouldn't be that hard to find a new use for a building designed to host athletes. In Los Angeles, students at USC and UCLA now live in dorms that were constructed as the Olympic Village for the 1984 Games. Or you could go the route of Lake Placid's Olympic Village. Worried about security and cost, the organizers of the 1980 Winter Olympics came up with a unique solution, an Olympic village that would be turned into a federal prison after the Olympics. Athletes and coaches complained about being housed in rooms designed as prison cells. And today, it stands as a monument to the Olympics' troubled relationship with policing, which we'll talk about in a bit. All that being said, it was cost-effective. It's harder, though, to repurpose a bobsled run. The problem with the Olympics is they've got all of these sports that are somewhat obscure. And you just don't need a 10,000-seat swimming facility or a world-class velodrome that seats 5,000 in any city in the world. It's no wonder that, in 2018, a photographer visiting the site of the 2008 Beijing Olympics found the beach volleyball stadium abandoned and locals growing vegetables amid the weeds in the former BMX course. There are some examples of strategic building that have had long-term impact. For instance, the Stadio Olimpico in Rome, built for the 1960 Olympics, has seen regular use ever since. It was the main venue for the 1990 World Cup and hosted four matches of the Euro 2020 soccer tournament just last year. That's the kind of landmark Jean Drapeau had in mind, and his enigmatic architect didn't disappoint. Talibert's design for the Olympic Park was bold, modern, and exciting. At its center was the Olympic Stadium, an elegant ring of ribbed white concrete. The stadium would feature a retractable roof suspended by cables from the world's tallest inclined tower. The promise of a retractable roof made the Olympic Stadium a suitable permanent home for the Expos. The circular footprint gave it its nickname, the Big O. But it was the tower, a new monument jutting into the skies above Montreal, that really drew the eye. The stadium was to cost 71 million Canadian dollars. All told, the Olympics were projected to cost 120 million. But Trapeau was confident that number would pale in comparison 
to the long-term benefits. Famously, he put that confidence into pretty explicit terms. A Olympics can no more lose money than a man can have a baby, is his famous line. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So, if we're willing to spend millions and millions of dollars on new infrastructure for the Olympics, how do the Olympics make money? And who do they make it for? To understand that, we need to investigate the origins of the International Olympic Committee, the IOC. It all began with Baron Pierre de Coubertin, a French aristocrat. After watching his side get walloped in the Franco-Prussian War, Coubertin decided that young people would benefit from some good, old-fashioned exercise. His bigger plan was to bring back the Olympics, sort of chisel them out of their Greek history and bring them back in fresh form in the 1890s. And so the Baron got together a gaggle of fellow aristocrats, counts, dukes, princes, and so on, and in the 1890s created the International Olympic Committee. And they had their first Olympics in 1896 in Athens. That's Jules Boykoff again, an expert on the economics of the modern Olympics, as well as their origins. If you could travel through time back to that first modern Olympics, you might not recognize what you saw. For one thing, there was a poetry competition. But also, if you worked, as in earned money for labor, whether as an athlete or otherwise, you couldn't participate. If you worked at all, if you were a grape picker, a bricklayer, a barkeep, you were considered to be a professional and therefore you were excluded from the Olympics. Well, guess what? That just opened the field wide for people like the Baron and other men of leisure to dominate. And in fact, the Baron actually got the poetry prize. That's right. The father of the modern Olympics won a gold medal at the 1912 Olympics for poetry. But the Olympics are completely different today, and so is the IOC. In the neighborhood of 10% of IOC members today are aristocrats, princes, dukes. Now we have princesses because as of 1981, women were allowed to join the IOC. You heard me right, 1981. Today's IOC bigwigs tend to be wealthy people with Olympic experience and an interest in sports administration. If you're interested in joining, you better start networking, because the only way to join the IOC is to be nominated by a member. This group of business people, administrators, and minor nobility controls who hosts the Olympics and who gets to make money from them. Essentially, the agreement that the IOC has with the local host city is this. The IOC basically gives a lot of the intellectual property, right? The name of the Olympics to the host city and says, okay, you may advertise this big event that you are doing as the Olympic Games or the 23rd Olympiad, right? If you listen to our episode about the gay games, then you know the IOC's control of the word Olympic is a big deal. That's largely because having the copyright enables the IOC to sell sponsorships. 
That's what the IOC owns. And the IOC says, okay, we are also going to, for ourselves, we're going to keep international sponsorship rights so that we can have uh, Budweiser be the official beer of the Olympic Games, United Airlines be the official airline of the Olympics, Visa, right, uh, be the official credit card of the Olympics. It's estimated that global sponsors paid the IOC north of $3 billion for the 2022 Olympics. That's not counting billions more from local sponsors. And then there's three little words that make the Olympics so valuable. International broadcasting rights. Ahead of Beijing 2022, NBC paid the IOC $7.75 billion for the broadcast rights to the Olympics for the next decade. And remember, NBC is only one broadcaster. People watch the Olympics everywhere on Earth. The IOC can start making profit as soon as, or even before, it selects a host city. And while it does kick in a chunk of money to put the games on, the IOC won't be on the hook for the final cost of hosting the Olympics. It's up to the organizers in the host cities to build the buildings, sell the tickets, and try to turn a profit. And when they don't turn a profit, they're the ones left holding the bag. Think Tokyo 2020. Apart from the athletes themselves and those closest to them, nobody was allowed to attend the Summer Olympics in person due to COVID-19. The IOC still sold its sponsorships and TV rights, but the city had just spent nearly $1.5 billion on a 68,000-seat national stadium, and now that stadium would sit empty. Japanese officials lost about $820 million in ticket revenue. The final cost of Tokyo 2020 has been estimated at over 25 billion. The pandemic is an extreme and unique example, but it illustrates how the IOC manages to profit from the Olympics, even when the host takes on enormous financial risk. According to the IOC, the Olympics provide other benefits. Chief among them is cleaning up the environment, or at least the promise of doing so. Jules's research has taken him to a number of Olympic cities before, during, and after the Games. In 2016, he watched as officials made and then forgot their promises to clean up a bay in Rio. And so the promise was that 80% of the water that moved into the bay was going to be filtrated because of the Olympics. The reality was actually only around 25-26% of the water by the time the Games rolled around was being filtrated. And you actually had a 99% chance of getting a virus if you drank a teaspoon of the water out of Guanabara Bay. 99% chance. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get sick, but let's just say the water was disgusting. In order to sell their bid to the IOC and to the citizens of Rio, the organizers of the Rio 2016 bid had promised to clean up the appallingly polluted Guanabara Bay. According to Jules, it's now clear that this was greenwashing a term for the PR tactic where splashy claims about the environmental benefits of a proposal are used to obscure actual ecological harm. And perhaps the most epic greenwash of them all was the most recent Olympics in Tokyo that was sold as the recovery games after the triple whammy disaster of the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. And Olympic boosters and Olympic bidders actually said 
hey, if you give us these Olympics, it'll give us an extra motivation to really help the region recover from that nightmare. I interviewed numerous people when I was in Japan in July 2019, and they all said, actually, the opposite is the case. They brought the cranes that we really could have used right here in Fukushima. They brought those cranes to Tokyo to get ready for the Olympics instead. So actually, the Olympics slowed down our recovery. The Olympics tend to turn green spaces into high-consumption, high-emission spaces. Usually those spaces are made of a small city's worth of concrete. In fact, environmental concerns, along with concerns about the cost, actually led Denver to become the first, and to date only, city to withdraw from hosting the Olympics after being awarded them. Denver had been awarded the 1976 Winter Olympics at the same time that Montreal was awarded the Summer Games. But up in Montreal, everything was going great. Nobody sounded nervous or on edge or... Whatever Montreal has been doing in the past, construction of our subway, uh, construction of the island for Expo 67, preparing and opening Expo 67 on time, all the challenges that Montreal had to tackle were tackled successfully and on time. And I know that my fellow citizens, workers, and uh, uh, administrators, and builders have no intention of uh, ruining the reputation of Montreal. Drapeau, whom you just heard delivering an over-the-top pep talk to his people in 1975, had a due date, July 17, 1976. On that day, the eyes of the world were going to turn toward Montreal for the opening ceremonies. So Drapeau couldn't have been happy that construction on the Montreal Olympic Complex had begun 18 months behind schedule. In April of 1973, Montreal was home to some pretty militant unions, and they seized the moment. Strikes and the threat of more strikes delayed construction and significantly increased construction workers' pay, driving costs up. Then, of course, there was the question of Drapeau and Talibert. It's kind of a strange relationship. It's not... uh... It's not a business relationship, it's certainly not, uh, it's not a relationship that you would normally expect to find in, in public administration, uh, where somebody is kind of selected mysteriously like this, and where he has got a verbal arrangement, and he collects, he puts in a bill every now and then, and they give him a, a, you know, a check for 500000 or $900,000. That was Nick Oftenmar, a Montreal city councillor, standing in front of an unfinished Olympic stadium in 1975, underscoring the mayhem. Oftentimes, he said, workers received contradictory instructions or no instructions at all. I was speaking some workers, for example, uh, a welder a few weeks ago, and he's working uh, seven days a week, 10 hours a day, and his uh, gross pay was $1,200 a week. And, uh, and I said, uh, how many hours did you work out of that, really, in the seven day, an average a week? He said about two hours. He put in two hours work. The rest of the time was standing around waiting. Drapeau was nothing if not hands-on, and he made a point of being photographed frequently at the construction site. In those photographs, he appears confident, but with all these delays and controversies, I gotta wonder if maybe he was freaking out on the inside, at least a little bit. Ladies and gentlemen, Her Majesty the Queen. 
The Queen herself was in attendance as the Montreal Olympics officially began on July 17, 1976. There was a military air show, which, like the rest of the opening ceremonies, came at the taxpayers' expense. But underneath the stadium, workers had been working around the clock and were still shoveling debris. Drapeau had gotten his Olympics, and they had started on time. But at what cost? The Big O had become known to locals as the Big O. That's O-W-E. Originally slated to cost 70 million Canadian dollars, the Olympic Stadium ended up costing the city of Montreal over a billion dollars. That accounted for most, but certainly not all, of the $1.6 billion total price tag for the 1976 Olympics. And, to make matters even worse, the retractable stadium roof didn't even work. The city didn't even come close to making up the money it had lost. Montreal did not pay off its Olympic-related debt for a full 30 years. With capital and interest, the total bill for the Olympics came to about $2.5 billion. The debacle had a profound effect on Montreal, preventing the city from financing major construction projects over the ensuing decades. Just before the debt was paid off in 2004, the Expos left town for Washington, D.C. after years of failing to fill the Big O. Not only did the stadium still lack a retractable roof, the concrete part of the roof had begun to crumble. Talibert's magnificent stadium was cavernous and unsafe. Several of the people involved in planning and building the Olympic complex were eventually convicted of fraud and breach of the public trust. Drapeau was never accused of a crime, but the court of public opinion was not kind. In reference to his comment about men having babies, a cartoonist depicted a pregnant Drapeau making a frantic call to an abortionist. In the wake of the Montreal disaster, the IOC found itself in a difficult position. Nobody wanted to bid. The choice came down to Tehran, where the Shah of Iran ruled over an increasingly unstable society and Los Angeles, the only other city willing to put its name forward. By the time 1977 rolled around, where they have to choose the uh, next Olympic Games, no one uh, was willing to bid. And so Los Angeles came forward and said, well, we will do it. So rather than the IOC being able to dictate demands on Los Angeles, now the shoe's on the other foot. After the Montreal debacle, LA's organizers had leverage. They were determined to avoid the mistakes that Drapeau had made. Their vision for the 1984 Games bore very little resemblance to the plans for Montreal 76. Los Angeles can say, no, this is the way we're going to do it. We're not spending huge amounts of money like this. We're going to use our existing facilities. We're going to bring in huge numbers of corporate sponsors. Uh, We're going to have McDonald's and Coca-Cola run this event rather than uh, relying on the taxpayers. The 84 Games still used public funds, but it was large corporations and wealthy business people who fronted most of the money. L.A. already had a stadium, the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, which had already hosted the Olympics back in 1932. In fact, it turned out there were a lot of perfectly good sports facilities in SoCal, as Wall Street Journal sports editor Jeff Foster explained on CBS This Morning back in 2014. It was basically the Southern California Olympics. They had the rowing up in... uh, 
the north, uh, almost near Santa Barbara. They had the equestrian basically in San Diego. They really spread it out. They used all like 300 square miles of Los Angeles. They didn't really build any venues. They actually went even further afield than Jeff said. The preliminary rounds of the soccer tournament took place all across the country, as far away as Harvard Stadium in Massachusetts. The only new structures built for the 84 games, a velodrome and an aquatic center, were paid for by corporate sponsors, 7-Eleven and McDonald's, respectively. The new pool was handed over to USC after the games, and the Olympic Village was converted to dorms. Revenue from the LA Olympics was quadruple that of Montreal, and at a fraction of the price. There was enough money left over to start the LA 84 Foundation, which continues to sponsor youth athletics in Los Angeles to this day. The 84 Olympics were, and still are, viewed by many as the formula for a successful, cost-effective way to host the Olympic Games. Police use the Olympics to get all sorts of weapons and, and monies and funding that they'd never be able to get during normal political times. Activists I've spoken with in Los Angeles have drawn a very straight line between the 1984 Olympics and the beating of Rodney King in, in 1992. And certainly the Los Angeles of today, this sort of hyper-militarized police force uh, that is uh, hugely detrimental in racialized communities across Los Angeles. In part two, we'll dig deeper and look at what actually happened when the Olympics came to Los Angeles and what happens to the people who live and work in the shadow of the edifice complex. What becomes of the promises the Olympics make about improving the environment or the human rights situation in a host city? And what if the security forces hired to protect the Olympics turn their guns on the people they're supposed to be protecting? Join us next time on Torched. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. Our producers are Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Original music by James Lavino. This episode was written by Stephen Wood. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Special thanks to Allison Cohen, Matt Eisenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.